You know, so how do you live the life you want to live? And first you have to understand what is that life you want to live and how do you want to proceed in that life? And I think that oftentimes success is conflated with having uh, a lot of money, which doesn't necessarily make people happy. So you have to determine what makes you happy. Maybe that is what makes you happy. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have Jeffrey Madoff. He's a founder of Madoff Productions. His company collaborates with ad agencies, public relations firms, and directly with clients to produce commercials, corporate branding, live streaming events, social media, and web content for massive clients like Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Tiffany, Radio City, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and Harvard University. He teaches a course at Parsons School for Design called Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas. He has written and is producing a play about rock and roll Hall of Fame legend Lloyd Price. Madoff has been a featured speaker at Wharton School, NYU Steinhardt, South by Southwest Brazil, Vision Summit, Rise, Barclays Bank, and much, much more. He graduated with honors from the University of Wisconsin with degrees in philosophy and psychology. Madoff was also on the wrestling team, which combined with his academic studies prepared him for a life in the film business. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to talk quickly about your class, Creativity, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Where did this stem from? Uh, the idea for Creative Careers came about as a result of me being a guest speaker at Parsons and then being offered the opportunity to teach a class. And they were willing to be flexible with the schedule. And so 11 years ago was when I started teaching the course. What I saw as a lack of in schooling was the ability to merge creativity with how to make a living with it. And so hence the idea of creativity, making a living with your ideas, because to me, a knowledge of business is like a knowledge of the martial arts. You know, how do you strike the most efficient blow to protect yourself so you can continue to do what you love doing? And I think there's a lot of mythology around the idea that if you're creative, you're not a good business person. And if you're a good business person, you're not creative. And that's just not the case. And uh, Picasso was a great businessman and very smart. Probably the most creative work in the movie business is the accountants. <laughs> you know, so I think that uh, the merging of the two ideas of creativity and how to make a living with your ideas is a powerful notion. And you have had quite a prolific creative career um, through Madoff Productions, through working with, uh, well, what are today very large brands. And one of your first clients was Ralph Lauren. Walk me through what it was like creating Madoff Productions. Why did you get into it? And how did you bring on your first client? When I started my company, video was quite new. It uh, wasn't being used as a medium for marketing uh, for companies that weren't doing television commercials. What year is this? And so I started my company in like late 1982. I had been doing the, I had been doing video though for a few years before that. Uh, and 
the idea of videotaping fashion shows and doing things that weren't commercials but could play at point of purchase became a business that hadn't existed before. One of the first point of purchase pieces I did was for Halston, the designer, who was my first client. And he called me and got, uh, he was getting complaints from Saks Fifth Avenue because they didn't know how to play the videotape. They were trying to put it into a Fairchild projector, which is like a, a briefcase. You know, it looks like a travel okay. alarm, but a briefcase size thing. And you put in an eight millimeter film cartridge. That's how far back that goes. Mm -hmm. And that was an old technology even then. Video was new, and actually a lot of the stores didn't have video playback capabilities yet. Now it's a fixture in every store. Video walls are a fixture in many stores. So I saw that there was a market that also incorporated something that I really wanted to do, which is become a filmmaker. So I can't claim that I had my ear to the ground and saw the future and got into that because I would have been much more successful financially if that was the case. I've always determined what I wanted to do based on did I want to do it? Was it fun? Was it exciting? Was it creatively, creatively and intellectually challenging? And that's what's determined my direction. And that actually fed right into the notion of the class. Mm -hmm. that I teach because I had to figure out, okay, this is fun shooting stuff. And how do you make a living at it? <laughs> so with video, what initially drew you to that and film in, in the first place? I always loved movies. I had a movie theater in my basement when I was a kid and would, uh, rent films. And actually it was funny. I would rent films, but I didn't have a sound projector. So I would take my sister's portable stereo, find music that I thought went with the movie. And it was kind of like we were having silent movies with the soundtrack in my basement. But I always liked film. And I felt like that was a medium that I could continue to get good at as I got older and collaborate with really talented people, which I've been fortunate enough to do, and to continue to grow creatively in terms of my skills and whatever artistry I have in that area. So that was very attractive to me. I never thought about, wow, I could make a lot of money if I did this. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the progression of video today, especially with the, anyways, the, the loss of attention span, um, people's ability to watch content for longer than what is it, a minute now, especially as people are scrolling through and then we're having Instagram videos. How do you how do you look at that? Well, I think the most precious commodity out there is our attention. And there's certainly an awful lot of things competing for that attention. Although I take issue with the shorter attention span aspect. I think that if you are putting that in the context of somebody who's with their phone and they're scrolling through Instagram and they're looking at clips and all that, then, yeah, it appears that things are quite short. But people stream movies. People binge watch series. Uh, so the attention span's there, but you have to capture that attention and you have to sustain that attention by delivering good programming. And I would say that we're in kind of the second golden age of television, if you will. And 
great shows starting with Sopranos and Mad Men and Breaking Bad and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is the latest series I binge watched with my wife. It's not about attention span. It's compelling content. So you watch it mm-hmm. and, you know, you, and you decide to make an evening of it. So I think that oftentimes it's conflated that the short attention span, you have to look at, so in what context are people watching things that they're going by so quickly? And most of the stuff on the online is crappy. Yeah. You know, we're also living in an, in an era where everybody thinks everything they do is worth other people seeing. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And uh, so as a result, even a minute video in on Instagram can seem endless because somebody thought it was really be interesting to post a time lapse of their lunch being eaten <laughs> or something. So people are watching long form content and that's not really a function of short attention span. And by the way, I heard this argument 25 years ago mm-hmm. and the argument was then because of MTV, people's attention spans had become shorter and people don't watch content that's very long online. Well, at that time, since it was before broadband, 25, 30 years ago, and you get that little pinwheel and you're waiting for the video to load and buffer, people would click off because the technology was limited. It was clear that the technology would improve, that streaming would improve, and you could watch, as we do now, movies online and not worry about that. But that was credited to lack of attention span, too. So I think you have to look at a bigger picture in the context context with which things are watched. So then when it comes to content and what makes it compelling, um, something that I've been thinking about recently is what are the dominant narratives that are in the content that we consume, Um, specifically as it relates to, um, at least in my world, gender roles and how does that affect women and men, girls and boys differently? So um, when I look through literature, there's boys have always had this hero's journey that they follow. Um, And that is seen in both film as well as in in books. And then for girls, what we've always had is um, damsel in distress, something and someone else has to save us, um, or mean girls, where it's all you need to cut out other women in order to achieve what you need to achieve. But in many ways, you're just out of control of um, what your destiny is. And for content, a lot of what's compelling is just things that are familiar and comfortable that speak to those tropes that we already accept as true. Um, What are the dominant narratives that you see right now and how are those shifting? Well, first of all, I would say that what you're talking about are stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And uh, the stereotypes that uh, women have been put under and men. Mm-hmm. Most men are not heroes, you know, and uh, so I think or that hashtag woke or, or woke. <laughs> right. And, you know, the hero's journey uh, what became popularized as kind of a shorthand for a narrative by Joseph Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not really you can fit things into that and mm-hmm. you can fit women's stories into that. So now you have a movie like Wonder Woman to give a really simple, exaggerated example that the hero's journey, it's a woman's journey and she's powerful and all of that kind of a thing. Uh, it's just a gender swap for the same old story. Yeah. You know, so I think that compelling narratives, uh, the themes are the same. 
but they're becoming more agnostic in terms of gender. Mm. So when you see a film that created a lot of sensation a few years ago, uh, Brokeback Mountain, Mm. you know, that there was two gay males uh, that manifest their love and affection for each other. It was a love story and it was about love and loss. Could have been a man and a woman happened to be about two men. Uh, There were aspects that were unique to the dynamic of two men because of the time and, again, the context we were in. So I think that the compelling narratives, the themes are always the same. It's about whether it's a conquest, uh, whether it is a coming of age, whether it's a love story, And then, again, the gender aspects are becoming more agnostic. So you have you can have a sitcom that can have a man, a transgendered man in it, uh, like transparent. Uh, A lot of the challenges are in terms of how the character is put forth. It still has to make you laugh. It still has got to be poignant. It still has to entertain and engage. So there aren't new story themes. Mm -hmm. But mm-hmm. the characters may be new yep. and some of the challenges they have may be new. But I think the overarching narrative themes are the same. Do you think motivation, fundamental human motivations have changed? At no, all? I don't think fundamental motivations have changed at all. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be loved. We all want to be embraced. Uh, we all want to feel like we are not alone in our struggles. And I think that those stories and those character traits, greed, mm-hmm. war, all these things have not changed. That's why whether you're talking about Shakespeare or classic movies from the 30s and 40s, those themes we revisit again and again and again because that's who we are as human beings. As an artist, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, um, some of those challenges and motivations that you just touched upon, what do you think has been the biggest driver for you? I think there's a few. The play that I wrote uh, about rock and roll legend Lloyd Price is one about race and identity. And I think identity is a, is a major issue. And I think we're seeing more and more of that as the genders become more agnostic in the stories that are told. Who am I? What am I? Uh, what do I stand for? Uh, what are the obstacles in the way of me manifesting who I am and who I hope to be? So I think all those are the same, and those are always compelling stories to me. So when I think back on... One of my favorite movies and books was To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. So it was uh, it was a story. Essentially, it was interesting. A lot of people thought it was a story about race and Atticus defending the black man. It was really a love story written by the daughter, Scout, when she got older, looking back at her father, Atticus. And it's a beautiful story. And I think that, again, those themes are forever because I don't think that basic human expression has changed or basic human needs or motivations have changed. When you got started with your career, do you feel like 
I mean, especially in a creative career, this the ego is very tenuous and how you feel on a day to day because it is at the whim of the audience and the people who are going to be consuming your content. Um, can you take us back to when you were creating um, your first film, your first commercial? Um, what? How did you feel? Did you feel like you had to prove yourself? Well, you know, again, one of my qualifiers and everything, and I think it's important to understand, is context. Yep. So if I'm doing a commercial, the purpose of the commercial isn't for me to have some great artistic expression. The purpose is to bring whatever talents I have to bear to enhance the image and saleability of a product. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I'm telling some complex story. And uh, that, when I'm doing uh, a film I hope to do and when I'm doing this play about Lloyd, then all these things about creativity come into play in terms of, of the very complex nature of telling a longer form story. Commercials are very, very different than that. You know, uh, doesn't mean they're not creative, but mm -hmm. it's not this, the same issues don't come into play. And I'm pleasing a client. So take us then let's zoom in on the creative side um, of telling that longer form story. Walk me through that emotional process and journey as you're as you're building it. So in the specific example of the play personality, which is about the life of Lloyd Price, uh, what happened was. I was hired to do a documentary about Lloyd. And when I researched him, I knew who he was, but I didn't know anything about his life. And I knew his music. For those who don't know who he is, could you? So Lloyd Price was the first teenager to sell over a million records. That was in 1952, his song mm -hmm. Lottie Miss Claudie. Mm -hmm. And Lottie Miss Claudie was covered by the Beatles, by Elvis, by Little Richard, by Bruce Springsteen, on and on and on. His songs have been covered a lot. So he was not only the first teenager that sold over a million records, he also broke down the wall that was called race records, where you can only buy records by black artists in black mm -hmm. record stores. Nobody's prejudice against green. Everybody <laughs> likes money. So that's what drove the marketplace. It wasn't a sense of conscience or wasn't a relaxed racism. <laughs> it was that people could profit from it. But the point is that's a change that stayed. Uh, he was also the first musical artist of any color to start his own label. Uh, he was the first black to open a nightclub below Harlem. And his, he's an entrepreneur. And his story is one about identity, about the obstacles of race, where he couldn't walk into the front door of a hotel that he was headlining in, uh, that he'd have to go around back to get food, that he'd have to stay at a different place. And uh, so the challenges he had, the entrepreneurship he had in starting his own label and figuring out music math and all of that. So when I interviewed Lloyd for the documentary and got to know him a bit, I found his story incredibly compelling and him to be a very compelling person. I told him, I think I can capture your voice. I want to tell your story. And uh, that was the beginning. So first of all, I researched him further 
and interviewed him over the course of a number of days for probably like 27 hours. And I videoed all of it too. And I transcribed all of it to try to distill. So what's the story I want to tell? This guy has a lot going on. What's the story that I want to tell? And that's often uh, the biggest challenge is what story do you want to tell? And so how do you go from beginning to end in a way that's going to hold an audience's attention? So you've got to have what's interesting is how people overcome obstacles. You know, what's in the way. And that's true in any movie. It could be a James Bond movie. Physically and mentally. Yes, yes. And so it's always, you know, you chase the cat up the tree, you throw stones at it, and somehow the cat gets out and prevails. And, you know, the story that holds our attention is when somebody has obstacles they have to overcome to achieve their goal. And, you know, and those can be emotional obstacles, they could be physical obstacles, but that's what keeps our attention is how they overcome those goals and how do they reach the fulfillment they're seeking or the happiness they're seeking or whatever. So Lloyd's story was music was his ticket out of Kenner, Louisiana. And although it got him out, he still confronted the racism across the country as he was performing. And, uh, So there were obstacles along the way. Music changed. You know, he was drafted, went to Korea. Uh, When he came back, he was no longer a relevant musician. So that's another obstacle. How do you reinvent yourself and regain your relevance? Mm -hmm. So all along the way, there was this great play of uh, success. Then a wall goes up. Then how do I navigate over, under, around, or through that wall? And it looks like you're coasting well. And then another wall goes up. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like in business, not kind of like it is, as in business, you know, you can look at a tremendously successful company that's got that hockey stick graph. And it looks like, wow, rocket ship to the stars. But you zoom in on it and there's peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs all along the way. You know this as yep. an entrepreneur. And that's what entrepreneurs face all the time. And that's what we face in life all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, if people are honest, it's not like everything is great all the time. Yeah. It's tough. And that's, I mean, that's really even the, the whole reason for this podcast is, is zooming in on those peaks and valleys. Um, and especially in this day and age where there's even more pressure than ever to show that everything's great. Um, in a, in an age of social media where, um, I was just talking to someone about how it's, it comes as such a surprise when we hear like the, there's, there's a, someone with a great Instagram and then they, um, you find out that on extreme they committed suicide and you're like, well, how is it possible that she was going through anything when her, she's smiling on Instagram. And maybe um, there, I could capture her following. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that in this particular case, I'm interested in you had this 27 hour interview journey and you um, hear about this man's story. Did you feel pressure or you know, what sort of emotions were you feeling in terms of figuring out if you could do justice to this story? You know, I never felt pressure. I mean, pressure is self-imposed. 
you know, it's pressure or stress if you recognize it as such. So I never felt pressure because I knew that the material was there and then it was up to me to shape it. I knew that Lloyd's life had a great story arc to it. And so I can't say that I ever felt pressure. Uh, I felt excitement because I was shaping a story that I thought could be really cool. Uh, And pressure wasn't a part of it. But, you know, I want to address what you said in terms of the social media mm-hmm. uh, and how everybody has to look like they're they're doing great. And I think that it's not a coincidence that Apple's products have an I prefix, mm-hmm. the iPhone, the iPad, uh, iMovie. And I think that... Find this podcast on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to plug your podcast, by the way? Um, and the reason I mention that is that I think, you know, it relates back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about how people will post anything, uh, is that I think we're in an... We're going to look back at this era, and this is an era of narcissism to the extreme, where everybody thinks everything they do is worth other people's attention. Obviously, there's not enough attention to go around. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, Apple certainly has the pulse on cool design and our culture that it's not, you know, it's not a coincidence that the I is the prefix. And so I think that in people trying to project that kind of a positive image, we all know that things aren't great all the time. And the thing is, you can't trust anybody that says they are. Because if you have lived life at all, you know it's not true. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's interesting is people have, more individuals market themselves as if they're a product. Mm-hmm. And it's this unending barrage of bullshit about, you know, who they are, what they are, and that everything is great and glamorous all the time. Mm-hmm. We know it's not. It's fun to maybe watch that fantasy. You know, I mean, it's not for me. I'm not interested in it. But a lot of people are. And there are certainly people who are big stars on social media that are famous for being famous. Yeah. Not for anything that they've actually accomplished other than accomplishing fame. Mm-hmm. But was there actually a pursuit of value that was brought into the equation other than the value of turning all attention to their day-to-day lives? Mm -hmm. I question that. What do you think drives you today to continue producing um, and creating? I have a wife and two kids and expenses. (laughs) So uh, that drives me. I think there are people that, well, speaking for myself, I have a compelling need to express. And storytelling to me, and it's always been the case, is is that form of expression for me. So when I was a little kid and my grandfather would come over, uh, and although he died when I was seven, I remember him vividly because he would tell me stories about his life. And when he was a kid and all that, and they were great. And my parents would come home and I'd be sitting on his chest watching him sleep. I was still awake and uh, I would just wouldn't fall asleep because I didn't want to miss grandpa's stories. I loved his stories. 
And storytelling to me has the power to bring people together. It has the power to create a shared experience and emotion. So when I see a great play or a great movie or hear music live or something like that, uh, what drives me is when I see those things and I know how I feel, I want to be the catalyst to cause that feeling in somebody else and to bring a certain joy or insight or laughter or poignancy and cause that reaction. So when we did the reading of the play and I'm sitting in the audience and the actors were so wonderfully talented and the director was did such a great job and the musicians that I forgot I wrote it. I'm just, you know, engrossed in the story because they made it theirs. But they laughed when I'd hoped they'd laugh. And there was silence and even people tearing up uh, when I hoped that would happen. And, you know, as someone who is creating things as a writer, as a filmmaker, as a musician, you may have intent. But whether that intent is the same as the reception from the audience not only do you not know, you can't control it. So you just have to do your best to put it out there. And hopefully you'll get the, the your intent is communicated. Mm-hmm. So it seems like then there's a couple important traits that can be distilled from that. Number one is this idea of being empathetic, like truly trying to understand someone else's point of view and how they're going to um, react to it. Uh, and number two, I think it's, it's this idea of taking the empathy and, and honing your intuition, being intuitive, um, because there's, that's really all you can do to try and put that story out. Are there, um, would you agree? And do you think that there are other traits, um, that you've honed over the years through your craft? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I think that the empathic response ultimately is up to the audience. You know, if, if a story is told well, then you will feel for that character that you're following on their journey. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the empathy comes in. As a person who writes the story, uh, you know, you have, again, your intention for that. But whether you will generate that empathic response, you don't know until it's in front of an audience. So you can write something that you think is the greatest thing in the world, and the audience sits like an oil painting because they just, you know, whatever your intent was, it's not being received. And the thing about the work that, that I do, the writing is solitary, but then it becomes a collaborative effort, whether you're making a film or whether you're doing a play, whether you're composing music and then working with musicians. And for me, part of that empathic response also comes through the people you collaborate with. And if you have a good collaboration, which means that you respect the opinions of the people around you, doesn't mean that you agree with them, but you respect them and you create an environment where people feel safe to express. So in the things that I've directed uh, in working with actors on this play, it's creating a safe space. Same thing as when I'm teaching at Parsons. I want to create a space where people feel safe to express and not feel like they're going to be made fun of or humiliated, which I certainly remember teachers doing. Uh, And I've certainly seen directors do, and I've seen photographers do it and all of that, where it's not a safe space. And so people 
are reluctant to express because they don't want to be vulnerable to the kind of abuse they might have to take. Can you recall a time when you were humiliated? Uh, well, when I was a little kid, you know, I, I can remember that uh, there was this guy in the, this adult male. And thinking back on this, this is horrifying. Uh, but I didn't wear Bermuda shorts in the summer. I always wore jeans. And uh, he came after me when a bunch of us kids were playing and his son being one of them. And uh, he pulled my pants down. And that was humiliating. I was probably nine, eight or nine. And this is an adult that did that. Well, we'll show you. You're wearing shorts underneath that kind of mm -hmm. thing. So I think back at that. And that was a really humiliating experience for that to happen to me. Uh, and, you know, thinking back with today's consciousness, really sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really a sick thing to do to a, to a kid. Uh, so I remember it. Uh, but I can't say that I have had any experiences honestly since then because, uh, I, you know, I, I can't tell you why, you know, I, um, I believe that if you see somebody being bullied and you're, you don't do anything, you're complicit in it. So I've always not only stood up for myself, I have stood up for friends, uh, sometimes even people I don't know, because I think that, uh, and I don't know that it's a result of that deep pantsing when I was a little kid, but uh, bullying is something that I think is horrible and it's horrible to do with somebody and there's never a good reason to humiliate or embarrass somebody. So you, during your entire your artistic career thus far, um, have you had moments where you haven't felt like you were good enough or your work was good enough? Uh, no. You know, I think all of us struggle with doubt, mm -hmm. you know, and the thing about it is I, I, for whatever reason, I think a lot of the reason is, is that I had wonderfully loving and supporting parents that uh, that I didn't I don't know doubt isn't the right word even I'm not sure what it is uh, because I think that in order to accomplish anything creative you have to take risks risks are by their very nature things that you don't know what the outcome is going to be and that can be scary or you can embrace the risk, and I'm not talking about like jumping off a mountaintop with mm -hmm. a hang glider. You know, I'm talking about creatively putting something out there which may not be accepted. But risk to me is impossible to separate from doing something creative. Because if you don't take risks, you cannot do anything creative. If failure to execute an idea, you only fail when you give up. Mm-hmm. You know, now that doesn't mean that you just keep pursuing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different outcome. That's called being crazy. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and have I had creative problems? Many in terms of how do I make this better? How do I resolve this and all of that? But again, it's kind of in the context of life. 
as long as the people that I care about, my family, my friends, myself are healthy, (laughs) you know, then the outcome of a creative project, that's easy to manage, Mm. you know, compared to the things in life you have no control over. Well, what's interesting is because my my thoughts on risk have also evolved um, over time and especially recently, because I often get asked, um, how did you take the risk to become an entrepreneur? Um, Weren't you ever afraid you were going to fail? I get questions like that. And I've gotten to the point where I fundamentally do not fear failure because I know, number one, my work ethic Um, which is not anything, it's not something that anybody can take away from me and that I will work as hard as I can to achieve whatever milestone or goal is put in front of me. Number two is that I don't actually see failure. I see it as a learning experience. But one of the things as it pertains to risk that has, um, that I've thought about more is that the ability to take risk comes with privilege because where does that abundant mindset come from? Oftentimes it comes from, well, if I do this, there's not going to be major consequences. It's not life or death. Um, so even becoming an entrepreneur, it's like there's a factor of risk of having a loving and supportive family. There's a factor of ability to take risk from having a financial safety net, um, of not being an outcast amongst your friends. Or um, So do you, do you feel like that's true, that risk at least even that initial part comes with a bit of privilege. Uh, I think it can, but I think that, that, you know, first of all, I think you have to define a few things Mm -hmm. that you just said, you know, so you have to define what is failure for you. And although you didn't mention it, I think you also have to define what is success for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that each person has to ask themselves that question. Uh, And I think, you know, what constitutes risk, I agree that if you look on a spectrum from one to 10, 10 being catastrophic, irreversible, horrid outcome, number one being basically no change, most things are probably in the three to four range that you consider risk. They're just not that big a deal Mm when you can step back from it. So, you know, I think that there's that phrase, well, you know, nothing to lose. Uh, But I don't really believe that because we all have our own internal emotional makeup and you can lose faith in yourself and you can lose those kinds of things and you can lose friendships through obsessive behavior in your pursuit of success and all of that. So I think that uh, I think that risk is something that you have to do a realistic kind of assessment on. And to me, the greatest risk in the areas we're talking about, which is creativity, I'm not not talking about placing myself at physical risk Mm -hmm. of dying and doing some stunt or something. Uh, But I think that creative risk is essential. And I don't think that that's a part of the abundance you may have is an abundance of either confidence or fear, but both can be tremendous motivators. Mm. And that that fear can fuel you forward, that confidence can fuel you forward. And so I think that there's no one answer to that question. Um, I took a big risk answering that. <laughs> I, because I, I um, think of it also from a gendered lens um, where I see 
I mean, a, a big part of this Enoughness podcast came from some of the female entrepreneurs that I observed um, coming through the SheWorks community who have been doing incredible things, have taken tremendous risk to be entrepreneurs, um, but there's still a fundamental feeling of maybe I'm not enough. And when you walk into that investor meeting and you're raising money, it doesn't matter how many tactics someone has. Um, because at the end of the day, if they don't feel like they're enough, then they can't take that risk to ask for more and just close and negotiate and say, well, take it or leave it. These are my terms. Um, and especially in this venture landscape where 94% of investors are men um, and this whole cultured norms of women being seen as bossy or, you know, too aggressive, um, that it's in some ways, in little ways, we've been taught that it's not good for you to take risk. And it's become part of that normal internal dialogue that we have. Well, I think that I would suggest flipping the question, Okay. which is what happens if I don't take that risk? Mm -hmm. You know, I won't start the business I, w I want to start. I won't write the book I want to write. I won't do the things that I really want to do because I'm afraid of X yeah. in the way. I was fortunate enough that, you know, my mom had a career which was unusual at that time. Mm -hmm. My dad took a lot of crap for it because they said, what's the matter, Ralph, can't you support your wife? And he said, she wants to work. That's her decision, not mine. Uh, my mom was the first female and the youngest manager at this department store in Akron, Ohio. When she got that promotion, the first thing that happened was this man, and this was before I was born, uh, they her boss said to her, I want you to fire this particular woman. And my mother said, why? And she said, because I told you that's why. And my mother said, that's not a good enough reason. He says, a good enough reason for you to lose your job. And my mom said, well, let's talk to the owner of the store and you can give him your reasons and I'm going to give him my reasons for why I'm not going to fire the person. Let's see how that works out. And the guy backed off. <laughs> so my sister owns her own business. So I grew up not having an issue because it was my day-to-day -day life with a woman in authority, uh, a woman who ran a business and she ran it in partnership with my dad and they started it together. And my sister started her own business and she's an entrepreneur. And so to me, there wasn't any adjustments to be made I never understood it. And I said to people, somebody would say to me, oh, yeah, I work for this bitch. She's a real ball buster. I said, why do you call her a ball buster? But if and being derogatory, but a man, he's tough. He's difficult, but he's successful. And I never really got that because to me, it's about one's ability. Uh, it's about the character of that person. And that's independent of gender to me. And uh, I think that growing up in a situation like that, it wasn't like it was a leap. That's just what I knew. Mm -hmm. You know, it was more unusual to me that a woman didn't have a career. You know, my, my mother were living today, she would be 101. So we're going back a ways. Mm -hmm. 
Of course, if George Washington was living today, <laughs> he'd be 300 or something. But anyhow, so I... I think I was fortunate enough to grow up in a situation that kind of presaged the future that we're going through now, mm. that I was not brought up in a household where those were issues. Yeah. Do you have any fears remaining now that drive you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, my concerns are that I want to make sure that my family is well taken care of so that when I die... I have left behind, I hope, a wonderful legacy for my family and friends and financial security for my family, although they'll do fine. But I want to make sure that that's the case. I mean, the only thing to me so far, because I'm fortunately I'm healthy, about getting older is there's just so much stuff I want to do. And mm-hmm. I'm excited about all the things that are in front of me that I, that I want to take on. So... The the concern is just making sure that I have provided well for those that I care most about. What are all those things that you still want to do? I want the play to open on Broadway. I've got two more plays that I'm writing. A documentary I think is really cool. A feature film that I want to do. And then a bunch of other stuff I don't even know yet. <laughs> have so, you traveled a lot? Yeah, I've traveled a fair amount. A lot of my work, uh, a lot of the travel I've done is through work, but I've traveled all over the world, which is, you know, fun. That's a, it's a cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we talked about earlier on was that, um, you were never fundamentally motivated by money. Obviously there's, you have to make enough to take care of your family and take care of yourself. Um, but Outside of that, like, I mean, how big of a factor has that played um, in your career over time? How has that changed? Well, you know, when I didn't have a wife and didn't have children and I was the only one placed at financial risk, that was different. Have I fundamentally changed on that? No, I haven't. Uh, So I think that, you know, when I say I'm not motivated by money, that's also from your point about abundance. Mm-hmm. I have been, uh, I have worked hard enough and have been able to be smart enough to do okay financially. It would be very different if my family was at risk, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, I think that, you know, abundance, there's a wide definition. I've always been able to provide for my family. So that's of paramount importance. So when I say I don't, I'm not motivated by money in the sense that uh, I want to be paid well for what I do. And that's why I do my job. Otherwise, I'd be writing all the time and trying to get other projects off the ground. But uh, the motivation is, is, to me, the most important motivation is, do I want to do this? And my definition of success in business is to be able to say no without catastrophic circumstances, you know, occurring and that I can say yes to the things I want to do. Mm-hmm. Without any constraint. Yes. Um, Meanwhile, I have to raise money for the play. <laughs> so uh, money does matter because yeah. that's what fuels a lot of the projects. Yeah. And in addition to a play, you're also in the midst of writing a book. Yes. Tell me about the, um, tell me about the book and what, what are your goals for it? 
Well, the book is called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas, which is based on my class. And uh, every time I have mentioned, oh, you teach, what's the name of the course? What do you teach? And I mentioned, everybody said, oh, I wish I had a class like that. So it's lessons learned from the large number of very accomplished people that I've had uh, in my class, but it's not prescriptive. Uh, it's it's lessons that they forwarded, but they may be contradictory lessons. I don't think that behavior is prescriptive. I don't think if you emulate the millionaire next door, you are going to become a millionaire. Uh, I think that life takes a lot of strange turns, and I don't think you can follow these steps. Other than, of course, you got to show up, you got to be ready, you got to work hard, you got to recognize opportunity. But beyond those basic things. Uh, there's so many other variables that are random, mm-hmm. you know, that that happen. So the book gives one, I think, insight into a range of different people and how they accomplished what they accomplished. And, you know, there aren't that many Elon Musk's and Steve Jobs and those kinds of people. But there's an awful lot of people, once they define success for themselves, which may, you know, so how do you live the life you want to live? And first you have to understand what is that life you want to live? Mm -hmm. And how do you want to proceed in that life? And I think that oftentimes success is conflated with having uh, a lot of money and... A lot of power, a lot of fame. Which is... (laughs) doesn't necessarily make people happy. Mm-hmm. So you have to determine what makes you happy. Maybe that is what makes you happy. Uh, but I think you have to determine what is success for you and what does make you happy and what does make you fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you have to determine what is success for you and what does make you happy and what does make you fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think, especially now, people seem to be looking for that silver bullet of how do I become successful? Um, according to societal terms, they don't even know whose terms they are. Um, how do I be happy? Um, it's almost like, how do I build the next Google? Um, so it seems like your book is saying that in fact, by offering contradictory advice that it's like, there is literally never going to be a silver bullet. There is never going to be a silver bullet. And so I think that something that is sorely lacking in our contemporary culture is critical thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, asking the right questions. And uh, I don't have the answers, by the way, but I do know the questions to ask. And so it's asking the right questions and being open to learning from other people. Is there a single bullet? Absolutely not. Uh, and I think that that notion, by the way, isn't new. You can go back to, you know, look through the bestseller list for decades. There's always diet books. Yeah. You know, there's always some kind of self-improvement book, many. Yeah. And there's always people sort of chasing that silver bullet. And I think if they ask themselves first and tried to work out some definitions for themselves so they actually know what they're pursuing. Mm -hmm. It's like the caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. Mm Mm-hmm. And the caterpillar says to Alice, do you know where you're going? And she says, no. And he says, well, then it doesn't matter how you get there. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to figure those things out. And I think that a lot of people just don't ask themselves the questions. And as a result, they're kind of on this journey that they don't even know what satisfaction is because they've never defined it for themselves. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. So, I mean, this whole, it all circles back to self-awareness and, um, like I made it a ritual for myself, especially last year, every other weekend I would sit on a Sunday and I would just write for hours. What do I want? What do I need? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, to what end? And it would, it would change over time. Uh, I mean, over the course of the year, surely, because especially when you first sit down and, um, and I asked myself like, what do I want? I had no idea. I mean, I had a, a big, like, I guess a big gray cloud of all these things that I wanted, but I had to separate that out. Um, when I actually asked myself why I wanted certain things. And I feel like having taken time to distill that, um, and actually find my own definition of success, um, which is, is still evolving, um, at least finding my purpose and my why has um, been really helpful. But it, I definitely didn't get there without a lot of thought and a lot of um, self-introspection. And it can change, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but at least it's the beginning of having a compass so you go in the direction you want to go in. One of the questions that I ask my guests all the time are if we would have known you when you were a kid, and we see any indications of who you are now and what you're doing. And uh, I look at the things that I loved doing when I was a kid, putting music against pictures and creating these scenarios with home movies, uh, all of those kinds of things, and writing. Those are all things I did when I was a kid. Those are always things I enjoyed, and I wanted to figure out how I can make a living doing those kinds of things. So uh, am I wealthy? No, not financially. Do I feel wealthy in terms of the things that I get to do and the opportunities I've created and the people that are in my life? Very wealthy. Mm. And that's what's most important to me. And I'm certainly not interested in chasing anybody else's dream. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur because I'm unemployable. So I had to start my own business. Then do you, because there's, there's two even conflicting things here where it's on the one hand, things are always changing. What we want might be changing. Our definition of success might change. But then also to this point of like, do you really change from those initial passions as a kid to who you are as an adult? I don't think so. I think that we repress and bury those things. And if you're fortunate enough to realize those things and you realize that that's how you want your life to go, uh, you know, it's funny when you get people to invest in theater and theater's like any startup, you know, they talk about, oh, with theaters, the failure rate's really high. Well, the failure rate in business is 96% after five years. So the failure rate in all businesses and theater is a business is high. So, uh, So the point is that the people that often invest in theater, invest in movies, are people who have made a lot of money and are bored. (laughs) And that's exciting because they get to go backstage or they get to be there opening night and walk the red carpet or have their name above the title. And so they're making, oh, yeah, you know, I always wanted to act. Yeah, but you became a dentist. And, uh, (laughs) you know, so it's. I think that lots of people, probably the vast majority of people, have unrealized dreams. Mm. And to me, 
the risk worth taking is the risk to achieve the dreams that you have. Because not taking that risk is much riskier. Yeah. Because <laughs> you lead a life that you don't necessarily get fulfillment out of. Hmm. Last question. Um, this this came to me. Do you think that you are who you are because of your circumstances or in spite of your circumstances? And then flipping it to most people, if you can generalize. I have no idea, you know, because if, you know, you're, if you're standing on the corner and the car goes out of control and hits you and you're then living with physical problems you never had and that all changed in an instant, uh, that is a circumstance you had no control over. And it may have changed your life in in ways that you could have never, ever have anticipated. And in those scenarios, then I I would define. um, So let's say, I mean, that is something tragic to happen to anyone to be, um, you know, removed of your physical capabilities. But then there's the person who takes that traumatic circumstance and incident and says, well, my life sucks now. And I'm just maybe I'll just live on the legal fees I get from this after I sue this person and live a, live a life kind of moping around feeling bad for myself. And that is a life because of your circumstances and the life in spite of is the person who says, well, I'm going to like, in spite of what has happened to me, rise above, become a Paralympic athlete, you know, Mm -hmm. um, write this amazing book about all these things I realized in life. Um, So flipping that back to you. I guess my response is that that person that that happened to and who has been able to still move forward in their lives in great ways uh, and not be defeated by the circumstance, there can be people that lose a job and they're more paralyzed than somebody who experiences physical paralysis. They just can't move forward Mm -hmm. or they're coping with addiction or, you know, different things that can really stop your progress in life. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it's because of your circumstances. I think that's kind of a false choice because I think who you are and how you are able to be supported and who supports you can help you go through really hard times and manifest, uh, let's say a healthier outcome. Uh, regardless of the circumstance. So it doesn't necessarily have to be tragic. So I think that the in spite of or because of, it comes down to the person mm-hmm. and making the best out of whatever circumstance they have. And uh, so I don't think it's because of or in spite of. I think it's because of who you are. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with this curveball that's been thrown at you? Yeah. Well, it's a great, great note to end on um, because I think that, you know, it's, it's been really interesting to hear your entire journey and your thought process through it, as well as how you look at your career and, and what's next for you. Um, so and I made all that up, by the way, because I'm a storyteller. Ah, okay. So yeah. next time I interview you, you will be wearing a wig and different voice and you'll have a whole nother career. What, what would be your career in a different <laughs> I don't know that I'd be wearing a wig and change my voice. <laughs> well, next voice. time we'll do video. I we'll see. Video. Um, 
Okay, so to end every episode, I do something called The One Thing, and The One Thing is based off of the idea that all it takes is one voice, one person, one experience to fundamentally change someone else's perspective. Um, I Especially think, if that person's holding a gun. True. Um, so I'm going to ask you about a few of your one things and just say the first thing that comes off your, the top of your head. Um, number one... What is one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend to anyone outside of your own future book? (laughs) (laughs) That's the one. I mean, that will change your life for the better, no matter what your circumstances. Uh, I really loved Moneyball Mm. because it was a way of taking calcified opinions that became perceived as fact and looking at things in a fresh way. So I thought that was really interesting. And actually, I would even change that same writer, Michael Lewis, I think is brilliant. He wrote The Undoing Project about Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who defined the field of behavioral economics, and they won the Nobel Prize. Mm. And so it's, it's not what you think, but why you think what you think. And it's phenomenally insightful and because Lewis is such a great writer he makes it accessible and fun to read Mm. and that's one of my favorite questions is just why why do I think this why do people think that Um, why am I reacting like this and on to the the next question then is what is one question you wish other people would ask each other more often why do you think that is that something you ask a lot yeah do you ask that to yourself Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I think that we live in a time that's so divisive now. And I think that as opposed to hurling rocks at each other, we have to understand why people believe what they believe and what is the pain they're trying to relieve. And I hope that there can be an outcome of greater unity as a result. Mm. But in today's climate, it's really hard to see that coming. If there was one decade that you could live in, which one would it be? I'd live in the decade I'm living in now uh, because now is what's happening. Uh, If I knew then what I know now, I would have bought Apple and Google and Amazon. (laughs) But uh, in terms of when I'd want to be living, I'm living when I want to be living. If there was one decision that you could have made differently as you reflect back on your life and career, is there one and what would it be? Uh, I would have maybe tried to pursue the, uh, the theater and feature filmmaking earlier, maybe, but... You know, I, I, I don't really know. I mean, I think that everything you do informs everything else you do. And all the background that I have uh, has what's enabled me to do what I think is the good work now. So, yeah, I can't say that there's anything out of really changed. Cool. What's the one thing that makes you the happiest right now? Uh, seeing my friends and family together having fun and laughing. Lastly, to make this podcast as 
actionable as possible for the listeners. What is send a check made out to <laughs> Jeff Madoff for his play? Um, one challenge, one action that the listeners can take today to move towards creating that best life for themselves. Ask yourself what success looks like for you and assess the kind of risks that it takes realistically and within context that it would take you to get there and then start moving towards what you want. Great. Thank you so much, Jeff. This was fun. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast, and you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness, and you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.